City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Well, here we are, City Limits, and it's, um, it's, the, it's the third Wednesday, am I right? No, yes, it is the third Wednesday, because we're doing housing, aren't we? Or is it? Yes, it is. Third Wednesday of the month. I'm getting very confused in this period. <laughs> but it is the third Wednesday of the month. I'm Kevin Healy. Meg Kimber's there. Karina's doing the things she does. I keep saying pressing buttons. I'm not even sure of that. But anyway, um, we're back with housing today, team. Good morning. Good to be here. And we're going to have um, two of our regulars, really, Shane McGrath from uh, Housing with Ace Action Group and Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing to discuss housing issues later in the program. Yeah. Uh, a few things to kick. Did you have anything you wanted to raise? Any particular items, by the way, uh, at all? Um, I thought you might say that, and yeah, even though I thought that you would say that, I didn't prepare anything. So, <laughs> well, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's more. You like could have just said of, no. No, I know I could have. You could have just said no, Meg, and that would have covered it. But uh, I thought I'd pat it out a little bit more. I think of it just as a sort of um, early morning quiz, basically, about what news I have or haven't heard about. And uh, um, that's kind of how I think test, about it. A test, you think, a test. It's like a kind yes, of a, a, a yes. news test, yeah. Do you, get, you must get pretty nervous about it, do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. Uh, I wish I could I, say I could hear, I could hear the shaking in your don't. voice. <laughs> I mean, if, it, if, if passing the quiz means reading the Herald Sun, I'd rather fail, to be honest. Yeah, well, um, you're probably not wrong there either. That's right. You just pass that test anyway. So you pass the test. Exactly. Do you go out every day, Kevin, and buy all the Herald Suns and Finn reviews and everything? I do. I do. I do. Are you the last person, you know, um, going to the news agency and doing that? Well, there's, yeah, there's not to do with, you might be right because I don't see too many other people. <laughs> anyway. There's usually a pile of papers there. Someone must buy the bloody things. Somebody must, yeah. Or, or not, I suppose, if there's a pile there. Yeah, the, that's true. Look, uh, speaking of, uh, we mentioned last week the death of Jack Mundy, of course, the great union leader. Yeah. And I was I was stunned in one level, and I suppose not surprised on another, but the Financial Review, which is a national paper, mm. and the morning papers here, The Sun and The Age, if you read mm. them, you wouldn't know that Jack Mundy died. Wow. There hasn't been a mention. Here's one of the great industrial leaders of this country ever. Yeah. And not a mention. You'd think the Finn Review would at least have it on the estate page saying, well, he, he stopped yeah. up real estate in Sydney no end and stopped the developer <laughs> getting yeah. their hands on it. Yeah. But nothing. And yet the next day on page three of the Financial Review, there was half a page devoted to the retirement of Alan Jones, one of the most you know, mm. noxious mm. sort of characters in this country ever. Mm. And inside the same day, down the back, there was a double page spread, Radio's Mighty Force, and a double page spread about Alan Jones. Okay. Now, I think if you compare Alan Jones to Jack Mundy, I think we'd all agree which side we'd come down on as to... Uh, who's the mm. better person by far. Mm. And indeed, mm. Alan Jones' contribution to Monday, I'm sure, would have been just to attack everything he did. Yeah, 
That is actually a bit shocking, even though we know what those papers are like. Mm. That is quite surprising. Yep. Mm. And disappointing. I thought so, and I, I, as I say, I was, I was on one level surprised, but another level you think, well, that's what they are, that's what they do, and yeah. Jack was a real threat to capitalism in a serious way, and yeah. so don't give him a mention. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Yeah, but what we're seeing, of course, we've seen the government, he, Victoria to a lesser degree this week, but government starting to relax the whole, yep. the whole lockdown and um, and regulations around COVID, and yet yep. they're saying that the, the news the other night on Friday night or Saturday night, whenever night they opened up, the the news said that they expected, yeah, you know, was go, there was going to be another burst of of COVID cases. Yes, and. The, the state health minister said it's inevitable that there'll be a burst of COVID cases with this relaxation. So if, if in fact, there hasn't been a burst because of what we've done to control it with lockdown and, yeah. and um, distancing, yeah. then, then if, that, if that's the reason, why do you stop that and say we're going to have more other than the whole uh-huh. thing is designed to support the capitalist system getting back on its feet. Yeah, pretty good. A pretty good point there, Kevin, and not one that I would argue with. They're effectively saying that the lives of the people who die are worth less than the profits of the capitalists who want them to reopen. Yeah, it's a pretty basic that's what, equation. That's my that's yeah. my interpretation of it. It certainly looks that way. Oh, but I haven't poured the tea. Hang on, I'm going. To, I'm just going to pour some tea. I haven't done that yet. Here we go. Hang on. Right, pouring of tea's done. Um, yeah, but that, and it's. I mean, yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry. No, there's the issue of of um, the fact that the federal government oversees the federal budget and um, and unemployment pensions, and state governments oversee schools and healthcare and hospitals. So there's that issue, isn't it? Like um, none of the states. Well, I mean, but there is there is a marked difference in the way that states res- are responding based on what parties are in, in government there as well. Mm. But generally speaking, a state doesn't want to have to have the burden on their hospitals and their healthcare system that a, a re-emergence would cause. But the federal government certainly doesn't seem to care and they want the economy to go back to how, how it was before. Exactly, and they're putting that first. Uh, one, one, one of it, they they interpreted as saying the states and the, the federal body government had to get ready and have the health system in a position where it could cope with a new outburst okay. before you opened up. But my interpretation is, well, why, well, why cater for an outburst yeah. if you can avoid it by doing what we're doing yeah. other than what business wants? And in fact, the Chamber of Commerce here in Victoria, a bloke called Paul Guerra, who heads it, He's been on. He's been part of the group that that Andrews has been listening to about what the government should do. But when Andrews eased uh, eased up slightly last week, they came out and said it was baby steps, and they're going to withdraw from the whole thing because the government isn't going nearly far enough in opening up the economy, etc. So, huh? Okay. It's uh, it's on. It's on. Yeah. Well, the the, the federal government have that. Um, you know, they've delayed the budget that was meant to be announced last month and um, they're delaying it as long as they can but they're going to have a huge deficit which is just like the thing that conservative governments are just like the almost the only thing that they care like that they're campaigning on most of the time they're just like budget surpluses so they're really freaking out I think. Yes and the Greens have come up with a plan 
for public housing and all sorts of things, government getting into deep debt, but it's you know it's debt that can help everybody. Yeah. Uh, we'll come to that later when we talk to Howard, I think, because yeah, it is, a, or even Howard or, or and Shane, because they're um, the Greens have put one of the Greens' proposals is to spend millions or billions on on public housing. They and actually calling mm. it public housing, but we'll we'll come to that later in the program. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, Annalise Van Diemen, which has been mentioned the last two weeks, we're good with giving her three weeks now because the Herald Sun won't let go. And oh, I see. Two weeks ago, they had the big front page attacking her. Uh, last week, they came out attacking her and and uh, and saying that she, you know, whatever they said last week, they just keep the keep the thing running. Yeah. And she's the woman, of course, who said. And let's just repeat what she said again. Uh, that sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive. Now, that's what she said comparing Captain Cook's arrival to COVID-19. And she actually said COVID-19 or Cook 1770, she tweeted. This week, the Herald Sun's come out again saying that a Victorian health official told by the Prime Minister to stick to her day job after she likened COVID-19 to Captain Cook's arrival in Australia. See, she regrets the distraction her comments caused, but she's actually saying she regrets the distraction, but she's certainly not withdrawing the comment. Oh, cool. The Herald Sun says you know, that she has no plans to delete her controversial tweet stressing the damage had been done. The damage done was that they all attacked her, of course. And, uh-huh. um and so the tweet was out there. There had been extensive reporting and removing it wasn't going to change everything she said. And um, we asked whether she withdrew. She said, no, look, it was an opinion. Uh, and she did it on a day off anyway. Mm. But the Herald Sun simply mm. won't let go on it. And as we keep saying, well, which bit of what she said is wrong? It's, uh, it's uh, none of it. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, pretty shameful journalism in the Herald Sun there. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think so. I think so. They're the only ones beating it up, but hopefully there won't be a fourth week. Yeah. That might be it now. It got back to uh, page, uh, what page was it? Page four this week. <laughs> so maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe just fingers crossed it'll be like, yeah, page 20. Some yeah, kind it was of, pa- um, page four on Monday morning, so yeah. maybe that's the end of it. Who knows? Okay. Fingers crossed. Yes. Now, on Thursday, Morrison they said the JobKeeper program could cost blowouts because more people are likely to use it than they planned. But the 14 billion job seeker may need to be reined in despite the biggest ever monthly collapse in employment. So they're actually saying, despite the fact we now have employment going through the roof, they now want to cut back Mm. as soon as possible the extra money they're giving job seekers, which I think is just so inhumane. It was meant to be... It was meant to be a six-month yes. doubling of the normal rate of new start. So what do they mean that they're going to stop it sooner than six months and put it back to the original? No, it's September 27, but as soon as they can, they don't. But they've, right. they're virtually saying once we get to September 27, which is the date they said, that's it. It'll yeah. it'll be cut back, but there's you know a lot of people saying, well, if you're going to cut it back, at least don't cut it back to where it was. Put it somewhere in the middle. But certainly, I think it should stay where it is. And mm. in fact, the greens the green statement I referred to mm. uh, makes that point that it should stay exactly where it is. Mm. Uh, and because last week, of course, they announced the the unemployment rate, which I think went up to six point two, if I recall. 
uh, in April. But that's okay. people who in the people who know, and I think anyone who anyone who can think about it would know that's a completely false figure. Yeah. And in fact, one one expert said if you look at if you look at the people who are getting job keeper but who aren't actually working, then you're looking at something more like eleven or twelve percent. Oh, okay. And I think if you're looking at so if you if you're looking at people who are who are uh, underemployed and working only a few hours, if that at the moment, then I reckon you're looking at yeah. a much higher figure indeed. So you know the the actual yes. the actual rate's much higher than what they're giving us officially. It always is anyway. Because a lot of people don't yeah. don't even register; they just give up. Uh, but but yeah. to cut that back, How, what has it been? What's it been? Um, unemployment rates back at you it's know, been around five percent. They they say if it gets under five, and that's virtually full employment, and governments think it's wonderful if they can get it down to under five percent. Okay, which is interesting because going okay. back when we had real full employment, uh, say in the seventies and eighties. Uh, Philip Lynch, who was uh, treasurer under Malcolm Fraser's government, said at that time that if if unemployment ever reached five percent, no government could survive with a five percent unemployment rate. Okay. And now they're regarding five percent as the norm. Yeah. Uh, at which at which they declare they've virtually got full employment. So it's interesting that they. But that change over all those years, and it's of course it's it's a change that allows them to keep people unemployed. Yes. But on that point, Richard Dennis, the the Australian Institute uh, economist, he he came out in an article this week and said that the only solution after this is over, or as we go forward to get the economy rolling again, I suppose he means the capitalist economy, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but to get it going. The only way is massive continuation of massive government spending, and yeah. he and he he taxed Frydenberg for trying to cut back on that at the moment. But hmm. he says that we need we're going to need massive government spending because the private sector will be incapable of getting us out of it. So that's just another interesting point. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, and. Rather ironically, I think, uh, and it probably shows their desperation, but major banks, insurers and superannuation funds are urging a radical rethink in how to steer the economy out of the pandemic-induced economic crisis, calling for stimulus measures that are consistent with the Paris Agreement climate targets. <laughs> and they've, they've actually got a group, uh, they've got a group of these people meeting which is calling for this and they're referring to a report from Oxford University last week which surveyed more than 200 global central bankers, G20 finance ministers, ministries and academics from across 53 countries. The report concludes that recovery packages should ensure alignment to Paris Agreement commitments and set the pathway to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Well, I I think we'd agree 2050 is a bit too far out, but that's what they keep talking about. Mm. When assessed, the most economically effective policy levers open to governments responding to the economic crisis are also those addressing the climate, representing dual benefits for our economy, dealing with both short and long-term challenges. Mm. The statement follows a report by the Grattan Institute that called on the government for green steel, etc. But all these bodies now are saying, yes, the government needs to spend money on green and on um, on 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 policies that 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 impact or don't impact on the environment, but in fact are part of the whole 
whole approach to address climate change. And mm, yeah, yeah, the um, the private sector has been turning that way for a while now, and there's like some very influential people within that in that zone that have been saying that for businesses to survive, for capitalism to survive, basically they have to actually respond to and account for climate change. And because they see a way to make money from renewables and, you know, because they're losing money in all these other other areas. So it's weird, isn't it? Because even these particular companies that have been trying to avoid accountability on their influence on climate change are now they're they're just going like oh well we're going to lose money for our shareholders if we don't invest in renewables instead of trying to keep on digging oil out of the ground or out of the seabed and stuff. Yeah, they're being influenced a lot by by groups that are putting pressure on them. That's for sure. Uh, I mean, insurance companies, of course, as we said years ago, they they're the canary in the coal mine of climate change. Really, they they know because yeah. they're having to pay out more and more for all these. Incredible, yeah. incredible climate-induced uh, crises across the world, storms and all sorts of things, fires. Yeah. Uh, and so they know, and I guess the others realise that they, one, well, one, it's it's economically beneficial to them, but also they can see that that's where people are going. That's where the pop. That's where people want them to be. And it's really only the fossils themselves, the fossils who make money out of out of the fossils that are still pursuing policies against that, uh, essentially. Definitely the government. Yeah, the government's way behind. Yeah. But I don't know. I think we've reached a moment where I actually feel more cynical than you, Kevin, which I am shocked to admit, but I don't, I'm not sure that yeah. how, much, how much the pressure has like actually influenced it more than the fact that they just see that they're not going to make money that way anymore. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to concede <laughs> to your cynicism. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you, 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 yeah, no, no, that's okay. I agree. I agree. You're right. That's right. All right. Well, okay. it's profits. We're all about lot of they all they care about is their profits. So you, you, to that degree, you're right. Yeah. But they, but there have been groups going to board meetings, etc., putting a lot of pressure on them as well, which probably helps a bit. But you're right. I mean, ultimately, it's their profits. Yeah. Fails, that's all they care about. Yeah. Well, there is there is the factor of that um, companies see that in order to survive and make money, they have to have social license, and so they have to try to respond to those things because but the ult- the bottom line is the the is the bottom line you know that's right well this lot i mean what they actually said last week uh mm. that um that uh, simply throwing money at old forms of infrastructure was no longer appropriate instead an in an innovative approach innovative approach was needed that accepted the science of climate change and made sure any infrastructure or other stimulus spending would solve rather than contribute to the problem of global warming. Mm. It urged governments and businesses to view the pandemic as a taste of the sort of shocks climate change will bring mm. and to take the opportunity to learn from it to prepare for the next shock. Wow. Which is a pretty good statement <laughs> coming from it that is. lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. good statement coming from anyone, but yeah. yeah. Imagine if our government said something like that. It would be very refreshing. Yeah, we'd all faint though. We'd to have a, a nation, a nation of people. That everyone think we've all died of COVID because all we on the ground fainted, <laughs> calling out the smelling salts. 
It's very Victorian era of you to refer to the smelling salts. That's right, yeah. the smelling salts. That's what we need. Um, we, we should wind it up there, Kevin, unless there's something pre- – another pressing item that you'd like to bring up? What I would like to raise, because I, I just found it extremely interesting, is that however we get out of this economically at the end and what happens, yeah. uh, you'd expect, you'd, ex- you'd, you'd know that someone who was, say, a former Premier, a Labor Party Premier of Victoria, for instance, would be urging for that instance? unions be heavily involved in determining what w- way we go forward. Yeah, And, of course, the business class government we have in Canberra would be saying, no, no, we don't want the unions to, to be involved because they, they're so evil and don't know anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rather incredibly, it's the reverse. Steve Brax, the oh. Labor Premier, has come out and said in assessing its policies post-pandemic, the Labor Party should ignore the trade union movement altogether. Oh, that's what it means. Because he says... Well, he he claims the unions don't represent the bulk of the workforce any longer. They're a diminishing and less influential group in the workforce. They don't have the sort of stock of talented people to draw on. Uh, Quite an amazing statement from a a late, or not, no, given Steve Brax, it's not. At the same time, of course, he is on... He is on the board of Industry Super Australia. He chairs he chairs CBUS, the Construction Industry Fund. Oh. So he gets no doubt above over and above his parliamentary pension. He gets money out of that. Uh-huh. Perhaps he hasn't realised uh-huh. that the people who pay that are actually members of a union. But anyway, yeah. but the other side of it is the government saying no, no. With all the concessions unions have made and the ACTU's made in this period. We want the unions to be involved, but I, I think when it comes down to it, they're probably both saying the same thing because mm. when the government says it wants the unions to be involved, it wants the unions to be involved in making sure wages and conditions stay down yeah. and the concessions that were made aren't lifted. Yeah. So perhaps there isn't a great deal of difference after all. When Steve Brack says that he thinks, so he's like, oh, the unions don't represent the the bulk of the workforce. Does he say who he thinks does represent the bulk of the workforce? Uh, he doesn't mention that at all. No, so you just ignore workers okay. altogether. One assumes, like, you just don't take. Yeah, you just, sounds just like Just ignore it. them. Yeah. And of course, the reason the, the trade incidence of trade union membership is down is thanks to the Accord and Cork and Keating years ago, which exactly started the decline of the union movement. So, yeah. Yes. Okay, so we, we need to take a break, do we? Yes. And, um, and get our guests on the line. We'll get our guests on the line. We're, you're listening to City Limits on 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Okay, Shane McGrath on the line. He's from the Housing for the Aged Action Group, of course. And uh, Shane, um, you'll be pleased to know, I suppose you've been following uh, Solomon Liu. Solomon's now, having said he wouldn't pay rent, now he's opening up again. He said he's not going to pay the rent the landlord wants. He's going to decide how much he should pay himself. But, um be good if landlords could do that, if uh, tenants could do that, wouldn't it, to everybody? Yeah, it's nice work if you can get it. The, um, I mean, Victorian tenants do have some opportunities to negotiate rent reductions now. Um, Consumer Affairs have a scheme up and running um, that people can access if they're struggling to get a good agreement with their, their landlord. Um, and it is worth, if, if that's you, check out the Consumer Affairs website, at least if you have the internet at home. Um, there's quite a lot of information there about what you can do to negotiate a, a rent reduction with your landlord. Um, 
you might be able to get some some extra rent assistance from the Victorian government as well if you do negotiate a rent reduction, but you're still still struggling with the rent. We obviously we hear a lot from tenants that landlords are trying to convince them to agree to pay back the rent reduction. So it's not really a reduction, but a kind of postponing of the rent. Um, and we'd really encourage people. I mean, obviously, if their circumstances are are urgent, they may not have a choice. But if it's open to you to, to push harder and to renegotiate that, we'd encourage people not to accept deferring the rent like that. Um, people across the state are successfully negotiating rent reductions and there's a fair bit of infrastructure and framework in place now to assist people to do that. Are there numbers on how many people are actually getting a rent reduction? Um, so Consumer Affairs have a system to lodge rent reduction agreements that have been um, that have been finalised. Okay. They say that they've received they'd received about eight thousand seven hundred as of late last week. Hmm. Um, so that's the the number that we have. Obviously, there may be more agreements that haven't been registered with CAV. Hmm. They say that the average amount of those rent reductions uh, has been thirty percent. Hmm. So a, a relatively significant uh, rent reduction on, on average. Um, you know, certainly we've heard some some concerning things about the terms that landlords might be trying to insert into these agreements, um, getting tenants to waive the right to repairs or things like that. So again, if you are negotiating these reductions, at, at least check out the advice online or consider getting some advice from a tenant advocacy service um, about what you're entitled to. If, you're, if your landlord or agent won't come to the table, like I say, CAV do have a service now to, to actually help people negotiate and ultimately have the capacity or at least the dispute resolution service does, to enter into binding agreements or to, to impose binding agreements. Last time we were talking about this, Shane, um, there was some discussion about the kind of conditions that there have to be for you to ask for a rent assistance. Like you have to mm-hmm. show proof that you've had a loss of income or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you know more about them? Yeah, so I guess, uh, I mean, there's no formal, like, evidence requirements. So lots of landlords and agents have been asking tenants for everything under the sun, you know, for information about their superannuation and whatnot. Wow. Obviously, we consider that to be pretty intrusive and outrageous. Um, to access the formal parts of this scheme, like the dispute resolution service or the rent assistance and so forth, um, tenants do need to have experienced a um, COVID-related loss of income. So... Uh, unfortunately, you know, I work at HAG, a lot of our clients are pensioners yep. and the reason they can't afford their rent is because the pension is too low. Yeah. So they're not able to benefit from this scheme. Right. Um, but yeah, if you have any kind of evidence and ultimately that could just be your own verbal evidence that you've lost income because of COVID-19, then you should be able to access some of these things. Okay. And we're joined by Howard Morosi now from Friends of Public Housing. Thanks for joining us, Howard. Hi, Howard. Welcome. Um, Shane, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned an item that state government said that the the tenants, the changes to the tenancy law that give some some better benefits anyway to to tenants uh, that that because of COVID they were going to move from July one to introduce them to after the new year a six month delay. Um, I can't see why that why would interfere with that. But have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mess. The um, the rental law reforms that were promised um, that were supposed to be delivered on July 1st this year, like you say, have been postponed for six months. The rationale for that is that there's the, emer- the new emergency rental laws that apply from, I think, sorry, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, from March 26th or so, March 29th through to September 26th this year. 
They didn't want those emergency rental laws to be coming into effect at the same time as the other new rental laws. They thought that would be too confusing. Uh, and, you know, given the intellectual level of the average real estate agent, probably was too confusing. The, um, the, but, I mean, it's a big problem. Like, we were just talking off the air about, um, you know, several of us are, are kind of forced to work from home now and we're actually shivering and filling up hot water bottles. One part of those new laws was supposed to be a, a requirement that landlords install heaters. And now we're going to go through another winter um, with, you know, low-income tenants across the, across the state not having access to that most basic level that you would expect. But some of this stuff has come in already. Some has been introduced. But mm-hmm. what, what are the main items that have been deferred that won't, that won't apply now for six months? Well, so I, I guess there's also some complications because some parts of it are replicated in the emergency laws. Um, but the emergency laws end at the end of September and the new laws don't come in until January 1. Mm. So one of the biggest reforms that HAG was really happy about was the abolition of no reason notices to vacate. So as of July 1st, you're not supposed to be able to receive, you weren't supposed to be able to receive a no reason notice anymore. Now, under the emergency rental laws, you can't receive that no reason notice. You can't be evicted for no reason. Uh, But after the end of September, as things stand, there'll be an opening again between the end of September and the 1st of January where landlords can again evict tenants for no reason or or with the flimsiest of pretexts. Yeah. Um, the government said that they may introduce some of those elements earlier. They may try and fill those those gaps, but it's still pretty disappointing and pretty chaotic um, trying to work out what that will look like. Um, I guess to their credit, they have brought forward the family violence provisions. So there was um, quite a number of extra protections for people experiencing family violence in the, the earlier package of rental reforms. And they've also been introduced earlier as part of the emergency rental laws. So potentially with the break after September uh, until the new year, there could be a risk of retribution in a way if, they, if, if there's been discounts and then there's any conflict in terms of how to, how to deal with that. You could see um, people being having evictions for basically no cause between September and, and the new year. Yeah, I mean, many, many tenants are expressing a lot of fear about that. It does seem like it could be real. I guess the thing that we have going for us at the moment is that the the rental market seems quite depressed, so it doesn't seem likely that landlords will be trying to pick people out if it's going to be hard to fill those vacancies. Uh, But who knows, really? And Um, and the other, I was going to say, the other side of that is of landlords throwing tenants out, but there was a mistake in the way that uh, the the Tenancies Act was um, stated that said that tenants couldn't just leave, they weren't free to vacate. And that's been corrected, that in fact they are. But for some period there, apparently landlords were trying to prevent any tenant who wanted to leave. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if any landlords were actually interested in trying to keep the tenants there. But yeah, there was a weird drafting error, or a couple of weird drafting errors in the emergency rental laws, which were you know, rushed through with a fair bit of haste. That meant that, you know, normally a periodic tenant can just give a month's notice and leave a property, but that right was uh, taken away. Um, obviously, that got a fair bit of publicity and has now been corrected. But I think, um, you know, it's disappointing that all the publicity about those emergency rental laws was the focus was on this mistake. But no, no focus has been given to the intention of those rental laws where, you know, very much parts of those laws are bad in ways that were intended by the government and that have not been corrected. And what I mean is, you know, Daniel Andrews has been out there and even Scott Morrison has been out there talking about an evictions moratorium. These laws absolutely do not introduce a moratorium on evictions. They establish new procedures for eviction, 
Um, but the, the idea that there's a moratorium on evictions in this state is, is just absolutely untrue. And that's the intention of the government. They've, they've followed through on their intention to continue to allow landlords to evict tenants during the pandemic. Howard might have a comment on that. Good about to say, Howard, Howard, bring Howard in, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I don't disagree with what Shane said. And, um, I mean, we do have some protections in relation to rent. So if Shane's saying that there's no protection in relation to eviction, well, I, I wouldn't argue with that. Also, I wonder if it was actually a drafting error in relation to the um, locking tenants into the tenancies because it was actually announced by the media uh, right at the end of April that that was the case and it took until um, uh, for two weeks for, for the government to correct that. Um, so I'm wondering if it actually was a mistake or if it was intentional anyway. Out of a fear that people would be... Um that people would be leaving their rental properties because they can't afford to pay the rent anymore. Yeah, possibly. Yes. Uh, Howard, have you got any other updates you want to give us to kick off with? Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot to talk about, yeah. So we've, we've had an announcement today by Dan Andrews, uh, $500 million to upgrade 23,000 public and community housing dwellings and build 168 new homes, uh, bringing forward or possibly... A, might be new or could be just brought forward what they're proposing to do previously, trying to stimulate the economy, work to refurbish the 23,000 public housing units. So, again, they've they've changed their terminology. First they were talking about public and community, now they're just talking about public to begin immediately. So, anyway, so it's not a lot really. 163 new housing units, whether it's public or community, is pretty pathetic. And I don't know exactly what the refurbishment's going to consist of, whether, you know, whether it's going to be, you know, just a few paint jobs or fixing up mould or, or what exactly. Uh, so that remains to be seen. Just a word about Jack Mundy. They're just remembering Jack, uh, who died last, last week. Um, Jack actually uh, had the serious public housing uh, units built in the rocks as part of the green ban um, campaign. And um, he, he asked what kind of city we want to live in. So it's not just a matter of creating work or spending money or whatever. And it's not even just about wages or conditions. It's also about what the final product is. And for me, you know, you can have more and more work, but if your product is, is bad or harmful, then it's not worth doing. Uh, and the whole question about jobs is a question about, firstly, about making sure everyone has a, a paid income. If you just keep increasing your work and uh, without regard to how that in work is, is actually distributed, you're, ne you're never going to solve the unemployment problem. So uh, there's those questions. And, and Jewel Topsfield took up that issue in The Age recently, asking whether we want to have higher rise, whether we want to have medium density, looking at how it used to be. Apparently, the Victorian government's been piloting a uh, kind of idea about livability as being you can actually access everything you need within 20 minutes of where you live, which would be good if they actually were serious about it. But from where they're going, is, as I said before, they don't seem to have any regard for what sort of city we want to live in in any serious way. And unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, as much as I'm a fan of the CFMEU in relation to... Um, their, what they achieve for the workers, uh, I don't think it's 
productive for the CFMBU just to be pushing for open slather 24 hour a day building and just any old project that some developer comes up with uh, as, a, as a way to move the economy. As I said, we've got to get back to the idea of what Jack Mundy was talking about. You, you look at what kind of economy you want, and you look at the level of consumption you want, and you distribute jobs accordingly. You don't just go for open slather. Um, so we're a long way away from that. Yeah. He talked about building environmentally sensitive housing and all sorts of things that, that when workers shouldn't build, um, shouldn't do unsocially or socially unuseful work. He talked about socially useful work, but one of them was uh, buildings that in fact did just make the environment worse for uh, in, to live in cities, etc. So yeah, he uh, he was a he was a great unionist. There's no question of that. Yeah, and so the CFMU and the MBA are calling for um, ten billion dollars stimulus package for social housing, which is similar to what ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, is calling for. Um, so that will actually build thirty thousand new units across Australia, which again is nowhere near enough. Even just in terms of satisfying public housing, we need 40,000 as soon as possible in Victoria just to clear the waiting list. Um, that's not even counting all the people that would like to go on the waiting list. Um, so, again, it's nowhere near enough. And I, don't know, I actually spoke to um, John Setka, Secretary of the Victorian CFMU, last year when we when defended Extend Public Housing Australia leafleted the ALP conference and gave him a leaflet outlining exactly what the problems were with the public housing. But anyway, this is the National CFMU, Dave Noonan. Um, so if anyone has got any contacts with Dave Noonan, please let me know. As well, we've had other calls, other organisations, the Australia Institute, Ahuri, they're all calling for more either social housing. Uh, Australia Institute uh, is calling for public housing as well as community housing, which is which is good, but again, you know, the focus has got to be prioritising public housing, as the Australian Greens have done, and prioritising the numbers that we need. As well, the Guardian reported the ACOS call as public housing, um, but if you look at the ACOS report, it's not public housing. They're calling for social housing because that's their policy. Their policy is just they're pretty much promoters of the housing associations. Well, that's their membership, of course. Yeah, so the Guardian, unfortunately, has not been helpful in relation to um, protecting public housing, and uh, they're pretty much just on, in line with the uh, housing associations. The Greens have come out yesterday and called for for uh, five hundred thousand public housing properties um, across the country, and um, they say that they've come up with a two hundred billion dollar debt led recovery package, which has lots of things in it, but one of them is to build 500,000 public housing, as they call it, which is good, public housing properties. Yeah, look, I've actually missed that. I hadn't heard that one. It was in Monday's Financial Review where I picked it up. Okay. Well, I should have a – when I get a chance, like, just give me a minute, I'll have a look at their um, their release. Hopefully I'll find it on their website. But, yeah, like the Victorian, the Victorian Greens have had the policy of specifying public housing whereas the Federal Greens didn't specify public housing. They said either public housing or community housing. So, And they actually did talk about it. They've been talking about a figure of half a million for years. So they just sounds like they're just re, regurgitating what they were talking about before. But if they've narrowed it down to public housing, that's great. So there's a lot of stuff that's come out about, about COVID and about private housing, about rents, uh, petitions, all that sort of stuff. 
So, um, so for example, well, yeah. I was just going to say, like, relating to the situation with um, COVID-19, I was wondering um, if Shane could give us an update about what's happening with Housing for the Aged Action Group and, and your clients there. So HAG is still, we're still running. The office is closed, but you can still call us on our usual phone lines and we're going to have our uh, general meeting, I think, tomorrow as this goes to air. The, our, our clients are still getting housed. Um, in fact, the department has made some pretty big strides as have social housing providers in sort of modernising everything. Um, you know, just a few months ago, you really had to go to appointments physically. You had to be driven around by your housing worker. Um, now, obviously, those, those arrangements have been more flexible um so people are still getting housed if people you know if you're over 50 and you've got a housing problem in victoria um you can absolutely give us a call and we'll see what we can do to help you it's interesting that this situation it brings all of these challenges but it also there's a few things that are now happening that um social services groups have been advocating for for many years mm. like um people are like the acknowledgement of the need for public housing and also the um, increase in the uh, unemployment pension. Mm -hmm. Well, just just for sorry, just for clarity. So the the increase to New Start hasn't reached uh, pensioners. So age pensioners and disability pensioners are, are, aren't getting any benefit from the COVID nineteen supplement. Um, it's just like, like there's a whole number of ways in which pensioners, in particular, have been kind of excluded from this. Mm -hmm. There's an assumption that pensioners don't rely on wages, so they're not. Uh, to they're this. presumed to be not yeah exactly um but of course many pensioners are part, partly reliant on wages um we've heard from a, a a few people who live in retirement villages which you might think was a pretty like bougie you know upper end of the spectrum kind of housing type but plenty of people with you know relatively modest savings bought into retirement villages that they live in in part because of part-time wages um mm. which they've now lost and they're not eligible for any of the rent reduction or rent assistance schemes that are available to tenants in the state. They're not receiving any benefit from the COVID-19 supplement to Newstart. Um, it can be a really parlous situation for, for some of those people. Yeah, and part of, yeah, part of a whole general kind of negligence of the impact on older people as well in terms of social isolation and, like you say, family violence. Yeah, absolutely. Circumstances and, yeah, just the fact that they're sort of being blamed for being a burden because they're some in some cases the more vulnerable people as well so, yeah absolutely. yeah in fact um on the other side of that of course is while pensioners aren't getting anything extra uh seven of the aged care providers seven of the big aged care providers including angler care which has had a few problems and catholic health australia have said the government they need a billion dollars off the government to get them through the crisis that they're running into all sorts of trouble so the the aged care capitalist side of the industry obviously thinks it does need some government help, uh, Shane. Well, I mean, the industry needs to be nationalised. The the private provision of aged care services has been a disaster from, from day one. You know, if they want to be bailed out, that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, similar, to the, similar to the circumstances in terms of rental assistances and the... Uh, you know, support and assistance going to property owners with the idea that that's going to be passed on, which isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, just like the airlines in the early days of the pandemic were, were demanding public money and were, I think, you know, sorry, I'm not across the details so much, it's not really my area, but I think we're given pretty substantial amounts of public money and then just stood their staff down. The, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just kind of outrageous rent-seeking behaviour that the government kind of licences. Mm -hmm. 
it seems they were also trying to stop people, or if people wanted to, because of fear of the virus, go and stay with their relatives or their children or whatever, uh, they were trying to prevent that or saying you have to pay some sort of extra for us to hold the place for you till you come back. But I think the government stepped in to try to stop that, but they were apparently trying to rip off on that one as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not so across the details of the aged care sector, but I, I, I think that's correct. Mm. Yes. Going back to public housing and suddenly when the, when the economy's in trouble, the government comes to the rescue, uh, New South Wales, because home builders have, because the home, the private home building industry is pretty much collapsed at the moment, there's not a lot of work going around. The New South Wales government is saying that it wants to throw all this money, uh, a $33 million pilot project, to actually construct public housing. But they or they call it social housing, unfortunately. But the state-owned Land and Housing Corporation wants to speed up the delivery of all these homes to provide work for the industry and uh, I suppose it's a benefit in it in this case because they're talking about providing at least social housing but I wish they'd call it public housing but there's it does show that uh, when gov- governments can pull their finger out when industry gets into trouble. Yeah, that's exactly right, Kevin. Um, there's normally not an issue with um, government spending. It's, it's more the fact that the um, private sector wants to stop government doing what it's capable of doing, often because it does it better than the private sector. And uh, just another thing, um, the Greens, for example, I just had a look at the article in the Australian Financial Review, and you're quite right. Um, It it is a new announcement, uh, although it may be the old policy, but they're talking about borrowing. They're talking about, you know, having some sort of massive debt. It's not necessary for the government to actually borrow from the private sector to spend money. If it can't finance it, I mean, ideally, you'd want to finance it from tax on the right sort of people, of course. Um, But if you can't do that, then the next thing you could do is actually just to create your own money. And uh, the problem with debt, of course, there's a number of problems with debt. That's what happened in the 1930s when the government, Australian government had actually um, run a massive infrastructure campaign through um, borrowing from the British banks. The British banks wanted their to impose conditions on the Australian, the Australian people, the Australian people, and um, that helped to uh, intensify the depression. Um, so you don't want to be beholden to the private money lenders, and by creating your own money, you're actually, you know, preserving your own independence. And it's something the US has been doing for many years. It's called quantitative easing. So they just create money. They do it because they're capitalists and they want to stimulate the economy. But it doesn't have to be for capitalist reasons. You can do it for, for good reasons. Um, and um, if you have a, if you set up a um, government construction department, you don't even have to call on the private sector to um, to subsidise them in their uh, in their own you know develop industries of development and, and real estate and all that sort of stuff. So you can actually have a complete self-contained. Um, government-led recovery and you can maintain it as a government section of the economy uh, through public housing if you really want to. But again, it's a question of will. It's not a question of economics. No, it's like like public spending on all sorts of things. It's a matter of will. The money's there if the government wants to do it and not pour it into the private sector, as we know. So, yes, but uh, I suppose 
but the the green the, the greens do make the point that it's all affordable. It, it runs your debt out to about forty four percent of GS of GDP, but as they point out, that that's um that's quite you can live with that quite easily. It's just that governments have got this phobia about debt and and surpluses. Yeah, well, true. I mean, if you, the question then arises: what is a what's a safe level of debt? You know, and that that's a separate economic issue. But you're right. I mean, I'd rather them do that. I'd rather them borrow and 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 create all that, all that uh, stuff that we need than not do it at all. Yeah. Um, just a question for Shane. Shane, um, I was listening to Steph Price from the Big Socialist, who is a, a community lawyer with West Heidelberg uh, Community Legal Service, um, and she was commenting on the the laws, the tenancy reforms. Uh, she mentioned that um, owners will now not be able to use a notice to vacate during the COVID period. They'll have to apply to VCAT. Now, she was pretty um, emphatic that the whole thing was uh, was was done to benefit the um, owners. But I'm just thinking, well, if you've got to go to VCAT to evict, um, would VCAT actually possibly protect a tenant from eviction in, in the situation of, uh, of no no reason? Yeah, so... So the, I mean, the real problem here is about how consist, inconsistent VCAT is, right? So you're you're right. Like in, in some respects, that is a, a protection, and the government is at least framing it or presenting it as a protection. You know, they they said we'd get an eviction moratorium, and we we didn't. But they said instead, landlords will have to take you to VCAT to kick you out, and VCAT has to decide if the eviction is fair and reasonable in all the circumstances. Um, I think is the phrasing. I might have that wrong. So. VCAT can say, look, you know, there's a pandemic on, we're not going to kick this person out over, over X or Y, but, you know, what, what they consider to be fair and reasonable, what this member or that member of the tribunal on this day or that day decides is fair, you know, it's disappointing to me that the government say they want a moratorium, but instead of just kind of handballed it to a tribunal that is well known for problems with consistency and accountability and transparency in its decision-making, um, there's no extra funding for tenant advocacy services along with this. So you're asking VCAT to make many more decisions potentially about whether it's fair or reasonable for people to be evicted, but there's no more resources for, for people to get advice about how best to present their cases or what sort of arguments they should be making. Um, VCAT's had its own problems with trying to shift to uh, phone hearings and uh, video conferencing hearings where previously most of their hearings have happened in person. Um, and that's also created problems for tenants who wanted to be represented by advocates, where in some cases VCAT's, you know, only way to, to conduct the phone hearing is literally to have a phone in front of the member that they can get two people on, and that's the extent of the, the technological capacity. Um, so there's a whole lot of problems with... Surely they could use Zoom. Surely they could. <laughs> they haven't started using Zoom yet. The, um, <laughs> it's a shock that they've managed to get their phones working. Just for the benefit of listeners, we're actually conducting this um, this interview by Zoom. Apart from Kevin, who's not on computers yet, but... I'm, I'm on Zoom. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, Shane, what would a true moratorium have looked like? Well, you're not evicting people. If you if you want an eviction, if you want a moratorium on eviction, you say no more evictions. It's, it's the simplest thing in the world. Like if you really wanted to, you could say you know, that a, a landlord can make some emergency application in limited and extraordinary circumstances. Right. You know, if, there's, if they'd suffer severe hardship if the tenancy wasn't ended, you could have something like that if you wanted to. 
But fundamentally, you just say they can't evict people. Mm -hmm. Well, they can evict people in, in situations where there's a danger to the you know, someone's health or the, or the status of the property. Mm -hmm. But as it is, they can evict people because they want to move back in, because they want to do renovations, because they want to sell. Like, these are garbage reasons to be able to evict someone at the best of times. But in the middle of a pandemic where people need to be at home socially distancing, mm. it's just ridiculous. Well, that, that's something we can keep an eye on anyway, mm. um, you know, because I guess we'll get feedback about that yeah. uh, as to exactly if the tribunal is, is, is calling the COVID a reason to trump all the other bad reasons for, for eviction. But just one other thing is um, it was reported that some landlords had, had actually stopped tenants from moving out with the um, uh, so-called drafting mistake. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear about the circumstances. I, I hope that those tenants have gotten advice about their position because your landlord definitely can't stop you from moving out. Yeah, well, that, that's what... Uh, there was an article in um, one of the mainstream media i think it was realestate.com yeah i mean i have no no doubt there are real estate agents either foolish or shameless enough to try it but uh, i think tenants would be in a pretty strong position if they did yeah it was only two weeks so i probably yeah unless they scared them out they wouldn't have been able to enforce it yeah no that's right that was um it was one of the it was i can't think of the group but someone reported that they were trying to stop people from leaving but of course they've changed all that now anyway uh, that leads us to another point, of course, homelessness. Um, during this crisis, we've found they've suddenly been able to find roofs over their head, roofs over their head for the homeless uh, people in the get them off the streets because of the problems with the virus. Uh, can they, one assumes they're going to try and throw them back on the street when it's all over, are they? Or have they shown it can be done, that you can, in fact, put a roof over people's heads? Yeah, I mean, I know that a lot of, I'm not really across all the details here, but again, I know that a lot of the homeless organisations have been really active in lobbying to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, obviously, it would be a tragedy if people are housed for the duration of the pandemic and then one day the government decides that the community is safe so we can make them homeless again. Um, what that's going to look like, who knows? But certainly it's, it's something that, obvi that obviously homeless people themselves, as well as the organisations that seek to assist them, are, are looking at. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens at the end of all this because uh, because they, they've shown they've shown they can do it. It's like it's like uh, climate change. They've shown that if you want to throw money at something, when you you know as we as Howard talked about earlier, having the will to do it. If they've got the will to do it, the money's there. If they have that will, but of course, in many of these things, the will isn't there, except to hand it to the private sector as usual. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen the federal government talking about winding back the increases to New Start as soon as they can as soon as they can get away with it, essentially. So we're definitely going to see governments of different scales trying to wind back the improvements, the protections that people have seen during the pandemic. Um, and it'll be up to us to, to fight to retain those protections. Yeah, Jackie Lambie, amongst others, have called for it to be maintained. So but Scott Morrison has said that there's no long-term uh, intention to change their previous policy. So it definitely will be a fight. So even to maintain the doubling of New Start, the other thing to notice is like this is another example of the necessity for government because effectively you've got six million people on JobKeeper now. The ACTU likes to likes to talk about JobKeeper as being keep, keeping people in a job, but they're actually it's just social security, really, and um, that's something the private sector couldn't have done. So it's actually half the workforce, half of Australia's workforce is is on social security at the moment um, and has no work. 
So we're actually coping at the moment with half of our workers not actually working and we're still providing all the food, all the, you know, effectively all the, the housing. Actually, we're providing more housing now than we did before, as well as education. We're doing it remotely. You know, we've been talking about working from home for years. We're now working from home. So, you know, it shows a lot is possible. And the other thing is because it's global, there's no question about capital shifting. Well, there's no capital to shift for one thing, but capital can't shift from one economy, one nation's economy to another because everyone's, all the governments are having to support their um, their people and run deficits and provide social security. So again, it talks, this shows how you can actually have a much uh, friendlier, uh, healthier, happier, more economic society if you do it on a global basis rather than for, you know, having everyone um, competing against each other on, other on a national basis. So it's actually a good example for international, uh, well, socialism really, or some sort of international economy, which has certain basic uh, provisions for people. Workers workers of the world unite. Yeah, well, that'd be nice. Huh. Uh, job keepers of the world unite in this case. <laughs> yeah, would be, wouldn't it? Um, we've got a time for just about one question and you're listening to City Limits and our guests today are Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing and Shane McGrath from Housing for the Age Action Group. Did you have anything that you wanted to finish up with before we were there? Well, I just, well, I think I just, I think I know the answer to this question, but there was a report the last couple of days as well that because people aren't coming in from overseas and students are perhaps getting out again or whatever, the vacancy rate for rental housing has gone up quite substantially. One would think in that circumstance, therefore, rents would be coming down. So I can ask, are rents coming down in the private sector? I can comment on that. So rents uh, have come down about 3% um, since COVID, and the expectations are likely to keep falling. And a large part of that, well, really, it's it's because of uh, the... Um, the fact that we've got no net migration this year. So net migration is normally about 240,000 people and um, overseas migrants tend to settle in cities and to rent. And Melbourne's seen virtually all its population growth from overseas migrants. Um, so, for example, in the um, in Docklands and also in the city CBD, um, something like two-thirds of the properties are rentals and now you've got three times as many properties vacant as usual. So the vacancy rate's about 10%. So it has had a big effect. And population does have a very important role to play in keeping rents up. And, um, you know, this opens up another conversation. Maybe we should leave it to another city limits day. But the whole question of population uh, and whether it's racism and whether, you know, exactly what sort of um, migrant or, or visa holder you want to allow in, because uh, it's been raised by the ALP recent or last week. Christina Keneally talked about limiting um, immigration to protect local jobs. Yes. So it's a big question, and it definitely does have an economic impact. And if you care about the size of your city, you know this is the driver for the increase in size of, of Melbourne and Sydney in particular. Well, we'll have to finish on that note, but that's, a, that's an opening for what we're going to talk about next month then, I reckon, Howard. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll go with it because it is an important subject, that's for sure. 
Thanks to everyone for joining us. Thanks to Karina for making this all possible from a technical point of view. Really appreciate hearing about what's happening with public housing and housing for the aged and the rental reforms. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll have another housing show in a month. And also next week, we do have a guest from some peer-to-peer education work that's happening through CoHealth, which is working with people who are sleeping rough and experiencing homelessness. So we'll be talking about that next week on City Limits. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.